Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Well, that was, that was awkward. Let's, let's not do that again. Because even in the midst of the silence, I heard it. The deafening sound of discomfort. And that sound, well, that sound could be heard by the nervous shifting and swaying of you in your seats as you opened your Bible and randomly began to turn pages over. Or by those of you who cleared their throats and coughed, and those of you who even stopped breathing for a while as all of your fears have become materialized. It finally happened, you said to yourself. The pastor forgot his sermon. Well, that's not too bad. At least we get out of here early, and maybe, just maybe, we can eat a hot lunch. There's something about silence that makes us uncomfortable. It's both terrifying and tantalizing. And so because we are uncomfortable, we tend to fill the silence with the superfluous. I prefer to talk about the weather than I do addressing my weaknesses. It's easier to answer with that four-letter word when the passerby asks me how my week is going. I'll say, fine, even though I, I know well that it's, it's going down in flames. And saying happy Sabbath is much more comfortable than actually asking your name or maybe giving you mine. Now, that's not to say that saying happy Sabbath is a bad thing, But it can be when it becomes a placeholder for that silence that makes us uncomfortable. The American theologian 
therapist and psychologist Brene Brown says that courage, courage begins with showing up and with saying, here I am, see me. And in the spirit of courageous confession, I must admit to you today that my favorite thing to do since we've reopened church is to walk down those pews and to engage with you in these bite-sized interactions. Only that's not to say that those interactions are devoid of awkwardness. And just a few weeks ago, I was shaking hands, and one of you looked straight into my eyes and burned a hole in my soul as you asked, who cuts your hair? <laughs> and how does it stay? <clears throat> I thought... <clears throat> was a compliment. It was not. <laughs> but I want to be courageous. Let me introduce you to my friend, Gorilla Snout. Gorilla Snout is what keeps my hair <clears throat> And they're not paying me a dime for this free advertisement. Some of these things that we use to fill the silence require rather little of us, don't they? I mean, they're simple. They don't necessitate that much vulnerability. So let me share, let me share something else. A few weeks ago, I was filming something during a pandemic. And somebody asked me as we were filming what my one guilty pleasure was. And I said, whatchamacallit bars. And one of you bought a box, wrapped it, put it in my office. And in 15 years of ministry, that is one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. <laughs> hint, hint, I like chocolate. <laughs> but you see, that simple gesture, it made me feel affirmed. Like someone was listening like someone wanted to show up for me, like somebody saw me. And I've seen it happen. Loma Linda University Church, I've seen us show up for one another. When the chips are down, we are a church that shows up for one another. Whether it's creating meal trains for somebody that is experiencing anguish and a devastating death. Or it's smiling week after week in front 
without having an official position. Or learning, learning how to operate Zoom in order to keep us connected. We, we are a church that is courageous because we show up for one another. And so if you wanted to come to church this Sabbath and just slump into a chair, boy, you've chosen the wrong church to do that. Because you're not invisible. We see you. We care. And we're going to show up for you. And we're going to show up Because we take our marching orders from this book. Luke begins to paint a picture. It's a picture that is attempting to fill the sounds of silence. As Jesus is leaving his disciples behind... Chapter 1, verse 14 of the book of Acts tells us that the disciples gathered together in order to pray constantly. The prayer was a central component of the life of the early church. The conviction to prayer is what allowed the gospel to move forth, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and finally, well, finally to the end of the world. Those two sections in the book of Acts where Luke describes this idyllic community, you know, the one with communal meals and shared possessions. The ones that sociologists and theologians alike have dismissed as mere dreams. Those are preceded by prayer. So it shouldn't surprise you this morning. It shouldn't surprise you that the early church prayed. What I want to ask is, do we know how they prayed? Do we know what they prayed for? Well, Melinda University Church, we are invested in growing disciples, and a disciple is one that dreams. So can you dream with me this afternoon? Acts chapter 3 tells us that Peter and John are going to the temple. And they're going to the temple to, well, you guessed it, they're going to the temple to pray. And on their way to prayer, there's a man. And he's sitting, begging, in front of a gate called Beautiful. And we don't know how long that man has been there, but we know that his experience was one where no one showed up for him. He was invisible. His withered hand stretched out, begging, asking for somebody Somebody to place a few coins there in order for him to have security. And the disciples stop. And as they stop, 
They put something into practice, something that they've learned a long time ago. And that is that in order for prayers to ascend, pain must first be seen. Because if you are not in tune and attuned with other people's pain, then what are you going to pray for? The book of Acts says that they prayed constantly. But the funny thing is that they didn't pray for themselves. They prayed for each other. Maybe it's that they had gotten it, that it finally had dawned on them. And that thing that Jesus had been trying to instill in their heads for so many years, namely that, well, that prayer is participation in providence. And let me say that again. Prayer is participation in providence. And that perhaps went over our heads a bit. So let me reflect with you on the words of theologian Robert Jensen as he describes this experience of prayer. Jensen says that when you and I pray, we're doing nothing more than than asking God to listen to our advice about how the world should go. So you and I pray because we are ask, we believe that God is interested in the advice that we have for how the world ought to operate. And the incredible thing is that God actually listens to us. My favorite preacher told me that if I don't make something clear on the pulpit... It's lost in the crowd, so let me clarify that statement. It's not that God, through our prayers, is convinced to do things he wouldn't otherwise do. It's that prayer is an invitation to participate in the joy of what he is already doing. You see, God is so good that he is interested in sharing his goodness with us. That's what prayer is. It's an invitation to share in God's goodness. And friends, I know quite a bit about sharing. I've got two kids for whom sharing is not a strong suit. (laughs) So, uh, So a few weeks ago, Linda and I take our boys to eat at a restaurant on Hospitality Lane, known for delicate desserts. I know. I know. I know it's the blue zone, and I've spent half my time up here talking about chocolate bars and dessert. (laughs) I've got kids. And so I did something with them that can only be classified as pure madness. I looked at them, and I said, you guys can order whatever you want. And they did. It's called a motherlode chocolate cake. And it comes in a tray. 
And both my boys put their forks into that cake and tasted it and said, Dad, you need to try this. And I tried to explain to them about slowing metabolism and daddy's sugar levels and the fact that I'm a pastor and I'm going to be judged if people see me putting this thing in my mouth and they didn't care. They just said, Dad, it's so good. You need to try it. And I did. And it really was good. And I realized something. When we experience something truly good, we can't help but share it. And so the disciples were engaged in this process of participation in providence. They were engaged in these persistent prayers because the gospel was so good that they couldn't help but share it. And I know that's simplistic, but in a world where we choose to fill our silence with so many superfluous things, don't you think as followers of the gospel, as disciple dreamers, we ought to once in a while feel, fill that silence with the sublime? It's just too good not to share. And you might be asking yourself, well, that sounds good. This idea of persistent prayer sounds great, but what does that look like? Won't you open your Bibles with me? I want you to come with me to the fourth chapter in the book of Acts. And as you're ruffling through your Bible, I want to share something with you. Persecution always follows persistent prayer. But that never frightened the church. And so in Acts chapter 4, right after Peter and John have healed the man in front of the gate beautiful, they're threatened. The Sanhedrin threatens them. And Luke decides to pen the first corporate prayer in the history of the Christian church. Remember, we're asking the question, what did they pray for? How did they pray? What does it mean to pray boldly? Well, let Luke's words wash over you. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why? Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, 
Consider their hearts and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And just like that, a connection was made. They opened this prayer by quoting the first two lines of the psalm that you can find in the second chapter of that book. Psalm chapter, psalm chapter 2. And the second psalm is a psalm that is pleading God for vengeance and judgment. And it makes sense, right? It makes sense that if Peter and John and the church are being persecuted, then they would start with this song that is actually petitioning God's protection, his vengeance, and his judgment. Only, that's not what they pray for. Did you catch it? Allow your servants to speak boldly. Persistent prayers are bold prayers, my dear church. And the purpose of bold prayers is never revenge. Speak boldly through our servants and heal through signs and wonders. The purpose of bold prayers is always restoration. But you can only pray this type of prayer if you've understood intimacy. And the disciples had that question after all. You remember? They come to the teacher. They look at him. And they ask him, Jesus, can you show us how to pray? We do that, don't we? We try to fill the silence with questions. And Jesus looks back at the disciples and says, oh, he gives them two words. Two words that should begin every prayer that we utter. You know them. Our Father. That's true boldness. That's true intimacy. In essence, Christ is giving his disciples and you and I permission to take his place. After all, who other than Jesus can refer to God as dad? That is true language born of intimacy. This idea that God wants to establish this intimate relationship with you so that when you pray persistently, when you pray boldly, you are praying for restoration. And friends, I know. I mean, I know about intimate speech. Because I won Linda over by writing poetry. Actually, I plagiarized poetry, but that's, a, that's another story. And one of my favorite poems to recite to her was Sonnet 17, written by the great Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. 
it goes a little like this. I love you in this way because I know no other way to love. No other way than this, that there is neither you or I. That your hand on my chest becomes my hand. And that your eyes close when I sleep. Pretty good, huh? Intimacy. And this is the kind of connection and relationship that the Father wants to have with you. And when you pray this type of bold prayer, your whole perspective changes. It shifts. You know, it's always about me until it becomes about we. And so you pray boldly. And something marvelous begins to happen. It's something that the 19th century French theologian August Sabatier describes in the following way. Thinking about prayer, he says that the power of prayer is that it brings the misery of man to God and brings back to man the help and the communion of God. You see, the power of these intimate, bold, persistent prayers isn't that they change you as much as they form this link, this connection, this connection between us and our world and our Father's world. I want to start praying bold prayers. I want to pray persistently. But you know, the truth is I can't. I'm not strong enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't have enough time. Well, here's the good news. The good news is that this boldness that the gospel is talking about is not individual. It's a shared boldness. It's a joint boldness. It's an intimate boldness. The biggest lie that individualism told you is that boldness comes from within. That if you attend the correct workshop or master the book or go to the class or take the following steps, then you will have this boldness that will empower you to make the decisions that will change and transform your life. The gospel, however, says boldness comes from without. It comes through the Spirit. A Spirit that wants nothing more than a close connection with you. Well, the disciples didn't have Neruda. They didn't have sonnets and poems, but they still showed up for each other. It shouldn't surprise you then that a mere eight chapters after 
They pray this corporate prayer. James is martyred, and Peter is in prison. Remember what we said. Persecution always follows persistent prayer. And so Peter is in prison. And what's the response of the church? What does this group of believers do as they're huddled in an upper room? Acts chapter 12, verse 5 has the answer. It says that Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. And the word that Luke decides to use there, the word that in my Bible appears as earnestly, is the same word that he uses in his gospel to describe the way in which Jesus prays at Gethsemane. The church is taking Jesus' place in order for, to intercede for one another. And this isn't a new song. It's not a new way of filling the silence. It's been there in Scripture from the beginning of the age. One of the doctrines that I wish the Adventist church could grapple with and recover is that of the sanctuary. Because when properly understood, you would learn this. When the priest in the Old Testament would go to the sanctuary, he had on his chest a breastplate. And on that breastplate, he had the names inscribed of all 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jesus was praying this prayer in Gethsemane, asking God to let this cup pass over him, he had your name inscribed on his heart and on the tip of his lips. And when the church a few weeks later is facing this reality of persecution, they have Peter's name on their lips and inscribed in their hearts. I mean, what could happen? Just dream with me for a bit, disciples. What could happen if the Adventist church ceased to be the church that debates about the geography and location of Jesus in the sanctuary and instead says, we are a church that goes out into the world with your name on our hearts and on the tip of our lips. I'll tell you what would happen. We would cease to be, to view the church as buildings and structures, as committees and plans. And we would start to view the church as a fleshy altar, as one another, where need meets resources, where we show up for one another. And where we are seen. But you're saying to yourself, right? I'm powerless. Again, here's the good news. The power of prayer is the power of the church. The power of prayer is the power of the church. Well, it happened... It happened in 1943. Leo Baranek was an engineer working on, at Harvard. And he was commissioned by the government to decipher a way in which pilots 
could receive clear instructions in their headphones as they engaged in dogfights. They wanted to find a better way for people to relay information as they fought in the bellies of tanks. They wanted to build a speaker, a speaker that would, well, that would accurately convey the orders from boats to troops storming beachheads as part of amphibious assaults. Berenik knew, though, that there was a problem. And that simple problem was that you needed to establish a baseline. You needed to find a way to decipher how sound would move in different environments. And so he asked for $350,000 from the U.S. government. And they hauled in seven trainfuls of fiberglass. And they built a cement room and put the fiberglass all around it and created what Berenik called an anechoic chamber. The students used to call it Berenik's box, a place that would deaden the echo so that we could completely hear the sound of silence. John Gage loved music. He had learned to play piano from his aunt, who had also taught him that playing is a good thing. That a radiator can be a great instrument if you have a proper stick to hit it with. That you can fill your piano with tools and trinkets in order to create new sounds. And so when Gage heard about this Berenik box, he traveled, well, he traveled to Massachusetts in order to hear the sound of silence. He entered the chamber and immediately was disappointed because he was met with two frequencies, one high and one low, buzzing in the air. The high frequency was a noise that his nervous system was making. And the low frequency was the pumping of his blood. And Berenik explained this to the composer in thrilled and inspired gauge. The idea that silence is a construct, that we have music inside of us, well, it inspired him. It inspired him to write the only musical piece that I have ever mastered. It's called 433. It has three movements. And if you look at the sheet music, Yes, Kim Rawson, I am a musician. If you look at the, at the music sheet, you'll see that what you have there is a series of bars and rests. And so the symphony, the pianist, the singer, whoever wants to play that music doesn't need to do anything. When it was debuted at Woodstock in 1952, a different kind of Woodstock, by the way, 
people were muffled. Because the performer did absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, our minister of music has been playing 433 since the beginning of my message. The music was created by the ruffling of papers, the nervous cough, the shifting in seats, the recognition that music is all around us, dear church. If you pray persistently, if you pray boldly, if you pray courageously like they prayed, you're going to recognize something. You're going to learn that God has never been silent. Mom, I know. I know you're worried. I know you're worried because you've heard that your son or your daughter doesn't want to have anything to do with faith. Dad, I know you're stressed. I know you don't know how you're going to make it with your bills this week. I know. I know that your marriage is struggling. I know. I know. But God isn't silent. They're praying in Acts chapter 8 and they hear it, a knock at the door. Rhoda, the servant late girl, runs to answer, and it's Peter on the other side. She's so excited that she leaves Peter at the door and goes back and tells the people gathered in that upper room that God had already granted their prayer. They looked at her and they said, you're mad. And in that moment, she probably felt some identification with Mary and Salome, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, her sisters that had gone in another place in another time to another room to tell a group of men that Jesus was no longer captive, that the Messiah had been freed from death. My wife won't forgive me if I forget to tell you that the moral of the story is husbands listen to your wives. But what I found so moving about that particular passage, friends, is that even as the early church was praying, God had already fulfilled their request. And so I don't know what your personal prayer is, but God has already fulfilled that request. So won't you go and engage in the difficult art of intercession? Won't you pray for somebody else? Won't you go out today, this week, and tell them? Tell them that they are seen. Tell them that we are rallying for them. Tell them that the Loma Linda University Church is praying. Won't you go out this week and celebrate the one 
who lifted us up. The Christian professor Ipling Raincutty said that to be a Christian is to have the sense of being prayed for. And we know, we know that there are names, names on your heart, names on your lips that you would intercede for. Throughout this series, we've invited you to participate in challenges. And this week is no different. You received a sheet like this when you came into our sanctuary. As we close and we pray, I would invite you to consider a name. A name that God has placed in your heart to intercede for. We have members of our wonderful prayer team waiting for you out in the foyer. If you want to pray with them, they would be so happy to do that. For those of you watching online, we have a form that you can go out and fill. Click on it and just send us a name, a name that God has placed on your heart to pray for. I know, I know that walking up to somebody and telling them, I'm praying for you, can be a bit awkward. So we want to facilitate the process. Because as you walk out through those doors, you will receive a post-it note. We are asking that you write that name on the post-it note and you stamp it on the wall, in the glass, at the back of the foyer. Our team, our pastoral team and our support staff has committed to pray for those names throughout this week. But you might still need a little more convincing. So if you fill the post-it note, we're going to give you one of these. <laughs> and if we run out, we're going to give you one of these. These are not for you to eat. These are, you for, these are for you to give to that person that you are interceding for. They're for you to walk up to them and say, God has placed your name on my heart and on the tip of my lips, and I want you to know that my church is praying for you and that when God intervenes, he does a whatchamacallit thing with your life. So won't you pray with me? To be a Christian is to have the sense of being prayed for. Today we know. We know, Father, that we are in this place because someone prayed for us. We want to take just a brief moment to allow you to speak into our lives, to place a name on our hearts and in our lips that we may pray for this week.
Thank you, God, for flooding our silence with your grace and mercy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.